The book of Acts uh, is this story about the early followers of Jesus. Uh, we call it the church and how God was empowering them to go from this uh, small region uh, of Israel into the uttermost parts of the earth. And it was this supernatural uh, empowerment by the Holy Spirit to, to do all this. And so we've been following the story of that and been looking at it and realizing that this is uh, not only the, the unfolding drama of what God had done, but also in a lot of ways a, a pattern for us to think about and consider in terms of uh, following Jesus in the year, in, in the world, and the communities in which we live today. So what I want to do this morning, before we jump in, uh, as far as title, we're going to call this morning uh, Receiving the Holy Spirit, and we'll be looking at Acts chapter 19, basically a large portion from chapter uh, 19, verse 1, all the way down to verse 22, somewhere thereabouts, looking at that. And one of the uh, frequent reoccurring words that uh, appears in this passage we'll be looking at is actually the word spirit. I'll give you a couple examples of this. So if you look at the story at around verse um, 2, you see the word Holy Spirit uh, appears twice. Verse 5, the Holy Spirit appears there as well. Later on, we also see the word spirit used in other ways. And the word that's used there to describe that spirit is actually evil spirit. So what we see here in the passage is some emphasis that the writer Luke wants us to be aware of and think about and consider uh, spirit. What, what is spirit? So the question that we want to be asking this morning is, what is spirit? What is in the mind of God when we talk about the word spirit? And how does that impact our life today, right now? So I'm going to pray real quick. And then before we jump in, I'm going to read one passage that will kind of set us on the trajectory for the rest of this morning. So uh, if you want to keep your finger in Acts chapter 19, once you go all the way back to Acts chapter 1, that's where we're going to start. Acts chapter 1. I'll read that passage, and then we will begin to unpack for us the, the rest of the chapter, at least verses 1 through 22. So let me pray. We'll read that passage. I'll actually show you a video, and then we'll jump into the subject matter this morning. So join me. God, thank you for your presence. God, your presence that transforms and reshapes not just our minds, not just what we think, but God, what we love. We're not just thinking beings, we're, we're loving beings. We are capable of loving, we're capable of having affections. And God, what we love will ultimately transform who we are. Um, we can think a lot of things, and it's not necessarily what we think will transform how we live, but what we love, God, truly transforms what type of people we become. And that's why we want our hearts to love you. God, we want the affections of our minds, of our heart, of our very being to be um, focused and centered uh, upon your greatness. So help me, God, this morning to be able to communicate and to express your word today. And God, help us to be recipients and responders to what you have to bring forth before us. And God, as a result, we pray for renewal. Not just knowledge, not just information, but true transformation, revitalization, and renewal into our hearts in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. We all said, amen. amen. All right. Uh, Acts chapter 1, verses 4 through uh, 5, and then I'll skip forward and we'll look at Acts chapter 8. So this kind of segues or begins the entire book of Acts. For some of us, this is kind of, re, uh, re, we've already revisited or we've gone through this, so this might be revisiting um, important ideas or concepts that have been already at play within the larger book. For others of you, if this is new, then uh, just receive it as it is. If this is by way of uh, renewal for you, then just drink it in. Uh, see it from new eyes. So listen to what he says, Acts chapter 1. 1, verse 4 through 5 and verse 8. It says, Jesus then told his disciples to wait for the promise of the Father, which you heard from me. 
For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So this idea of the baptism of the Holy Spirit is going to play into the rest of the story. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Verse 8, jump down. It says, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So here's the key word uh, or phrase. In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Uh, this, by way of review, is a sort of a template for the entire book of Acts. This is where Luke is basically taking us. That something about the Holy Spirit, whatever that is, whoever that is, is going to empower these people, whoever they are, to reach the uttermost ends of the earth. And that's sort of the template. That's the story of the book of Acts, as it telescopes outward from this centralized city of Jerusalem, from this ethnocentric community of predominant Jewish folk, um, to reaching out all the way into Europe. And this is where we see the book of Acts going. So we're already in chapter 19, and we'll be looking at, in fact, why don't we look at the the map real quick, and then we'll get into kind of the storyline. So this is the map. This is what's typically called Paul's third missionary journey. Um, And so if you go all the way down in the very, very bottom right, there's Jerusalem. Um, Paul would have taken some sort of a ship or boat, or actually would have gone up from Antioch, I should say, all the way to the region of Ephesus. That's where we find ourselves today. So I want to show a a little video about the subject of spirit or Holy Spirit. And uh, these are guys from the Bible Project. And if you have never heard of them before, I highly recommend um, imbibing everything they've ever done. Like, it's it's so good. They have a podcast. It's awesome. I listen to it all the time on repeat because it's so good. So I'm going to show the video on the Holy Spirit. And then we'll begin to take a look at how this plays out in the rest of the text of Acts. So enjoy the video. And then we'll jump in. If you've ever heard the phrase, the Holy Spirit, and you want to know what it means, where do you start? Well, you have to start on page one of the Bible, where the uncreated world is depicted as this dark, chaotic place. But then above the chaos, God's spirit is there, hovering, ready to bring about life and order and beauty. Okay, but... What is God's spirit? Yeah, so the spirit is the way the biblical authors talk about God's personal presence. The Hebrew word is ruach. Ruach. Yeah, you got to clear your throat at the end. So what is it? Well, ruach can refer to a number of different things, but what they all have in common is energy. Energy? How so? So there's an invisible energy that makes the clouds move or the tree branches sway. Right. Wind. So in Hebrew, that's ruach. Okay. Now take a big breath. So you feel that inside you? Yeah, the air? Well, specifically the energy, right? The vitality in your body that you get from breathing deeply. That, too, is ruach. And this is the same word used in the Bible to describe God's personal presence. Just like wind and breath are invisible, God's spirit is invisible. Wind is powerful, and so God's spirit is powerful. And just as breath keeps us alive, so God's spirit sustains all of life. Yeah, ruach. Now, as we continue on in the story of the Bible, we see God's Ruach giving special empowerment to people for specific tasks. The first person in the Bible this happens to is Joseph. God's Spirit enables him to understand and interpret dreams. And then it happens to this guy named Bezalel, and he's an artist. God's Spirit empowers him with wisdom and skills. He's given creative genius to make beautiful things in the tabernacle. And we also see God's Ruach empower a group of people called the prophets. They're able to 
see what's happening in history from God's point of view. That's exactly right. And here's the problem as the prophets saw it. While God's Ruach had created a really good world, humans have given in to evil. They've unleashed chaos into it through their injustice. A new type of disorder. Yes. And the prophet said the spirit would come, just like in Genesis 1, but now to transform the human heart, to empower people to truly love God and others. How will this new act of God's spirit happen? Well, centuries pass and we are introduced to Jesus. And at the beginning of his mission, there's this beautiful scene where Jesus is being baptized in the waters of the Jordan River. Yeah, the sky opens up and God's spirit comes and rests on him like a bird. The story saying that God's spirit is empowering Jesus to begin the new creation. And we see this happening when he heals people or forgives their sins. He's creating life where there once was death. Now, Israel's religious leaders oppose Jesus and they eventually have him killed. But even here, God's spirit is at work. The earliest disciples of Jesus, who saw him alive from the dead, said it was God's energizing spirit that raised Jesus. This is the beginning of new creation. Yes, and it's still going. When Jesus appeared to his closest followers, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And soon after that, the spirit powerfully comes on all of his disciples. So that they can become a part of this new creation and share the good news and learn how to live by the energy and influence of God's spirit. And so today, the spirit is still hovering in dark places. Yes, pointing people to Jesus, transforming and empowering them so they can love God and others. And the Christian hope is that the Spirit is going to finish the job. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a new humanity living in a new world that's permeated with God's love and life-giving Spirit. It's good, huh? So good, so good. That was, that was a half-baked clap. Good, good job, though. The people that made the video is not here, so it's okay. It's okay. You, you can clap. That's fine. Um, anyways, um, I, I want to jump into looking at the entire chapter, or the, at least the passage that we're going to be looking at. Uh, like I said, the, the idea or the theme of spirit, Holy Spirit, uh, plays into this passage. So I want to give special attention as we think about that. Um, I'm going to break this down into several headings that actually have to do with each paragraph. So the first thing we'll take a look at, the subject of the spirit. Uh, baptizing. We'll look at verses 1 through 7 as the Spirit baptizes a community of people. Secondly, we'll take a look at Spirit instructing, the Holy Spirit instructing uh, a community of people in the ways of, of Jesus. Uh, that'll be verses 8 through 10. Then we'll take a look at the Spirit of God uh, testifying by way of uh, miracles and signs and wonders in verses 11 through 12. And then we'll take a look at the subject of the Holy Spirit renewing, verses 13 to 20. And then if we have time, which we probably won't, we'll take a look at the subject of the Spirit guiding and how God uses, the, the Holy Spirit guides and leads uh, God's people and how that's supposed to kind of play out and think, uh, look in terms of our lives. So with that, let's jump in. We'll take a look at the subject of the Spirit first and kind of reiterate some of the things that were uh, put it in the video, put them up on screen so you can kind of be aware of some of them as well as some passages or to think about this. So we'll look at three ways in which the Holy Spirit kind of works. Number one, uh, as it was mentioned in the video, that he is identified as, as breath. So the word ruach, um, or in the New Testament uh, version of this is the word pneuma, is oftentimes translated throughout the Old Testament as well as the New, uh, just simply meaning spirit or breath, I should say. So here's an example. I think we got a slide coming up. Um, uh, uh, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7 starts out. It's the very first 
um, expression of this. It says in verse 7, And Yahweh, God, formed Adam from the dirt, and from the ground he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became an animated being. So God breathes life, and the breath of God is what brought life into humanity, the idea of breath. Secondly, as we see, as was mentioned in the video, the concept of spirit. Um, uh, for example, the spirit is this invisible, life-animating energy of God. Now, really important to understand that when we use the word energy in this context, it's not an inanimate object, the Spirit of God is personalized. Uh, it's not just sort of impersonal force. So I think um, oftentimes in America, at least, or in the West, we tend to think of the Holy Spirit as like the force in Star Wars. My suggestion is, is, is don't think Star Wars. I mean, think Star Wars. Star Wars is awesome, but don't think Star Wars in terms of theology. It's a really poor theology about understanding who God is and the Holy Spirit is. But the Spirit of God is this life-animating power and force that keeps all things sustained. Here's Psalm 104. Listen to how it describes this. Psalm 104, verse 29. In you, in, uh, if you hide your face, so imagine God, this is what the, uh, the, the writer of this psalm envisions. If God closes his eyes or hides his face or veils the very, his very life-giving presence from all humanity and all creation, he says, if you hide your face, they're dismayed, they shrivel. When you take away their breath, it says, they die and they return to the dirt. When you send forth your spirit and your breath, they are created and you revitalize the surface of the ground. So again, just, this is poetic language in which the uh, writer of the Psalms is describing in, in vivid terms and terminology of God is this life-giving reality that God breathes life and things come to life. In other words, things that were once dead or marred or broken or in ruin, when God breathes on it, it comes back to life. Think about the hope of this in Hebrew scripture. I mean, think about this in the context of a world that is gone very poorly off tracks, uh, that's broken, that's filled with mess. Think about this in the context of your life, the type of brokenness or defilement or ruin that you have encountered, whether it be a marriage that's gone broken or whether it be a relationship that is soured or whether it be some form of rottenness in terms of areas that were once thriving and once beautiful. Imagine what would happen if brand new life, redemption, restoration, restoring, in other words, God putting that which was once on track to death and brokenness and being ruined, being restored into the life of God. This is exactly what this word means. It implies that God is able to take things that were once broken and marred and ruined and breathe brand new, fresh, life-giving force by way of the Holy Spirit into these things. And then finally, we think of this, uh, another way to think about this is the idea of this future hope. So uh, the ancient writers, they were acutely aware of the reality that things were broken in this world as well as is in relationships. And so these biblical authors, they look forward to a day when God would permeate all creation uh, and all of his people with this renewing, empowering presence of God. Uh, there is this hope that one day, um, because what they recognize, I was, I was just thinking about this uh, recently in finishing the, the book of Nehemiah. I've been reading through the Old Testament and kind of coming around to uh, the, the, this section of Scripture. And Nehemiah has oftentimes been this book that's utilized for like, you know, seven principles of leadership. And it's not necessarily bad, but if you once get to the end of Nehemiah, Nehemiah goes so rogue, he starts actually pulling people's hair out and whipping them and hitting them. And that's not, that never makes it into the leadership books. Um, <laughs> 
And, and the, the idea is this, is that Nehemiah, in, in spite of his incredible efforts and energy to rebuild this city wall around, around Jerusalem, it still never maximized the ultimate hope. In other words, the very thing that Nehemiah was once hoping for, the hope, the renewal of God's people, failed. Didn't happen. The very people that Nehemiah was working feverishly for, they still went off tracks again. Why? Our hearts. Our hearts love the wrong things. I mean, you got to think about this. This is, okay, if you're trying to figure yourself out, here's a simple clue that will help you uh, change. It has to do with your desires. It has to do with what you love. The problem is, is that we oftentimes don't love the things that we think we love. Or the things that we think we love, really we love something beneath that. So let me give you an example. We can say things like, I love God, but really is God the ultimate expression of your love? Or is God just a step towards the direction of everything that you love? Give me, let me give you an example. We oftentimes fool ourselves by saying, well, I love God. So we pray to God, and we ask God to get us a job, or get us a spouse, or get us a child, or get us whatever it is that we're looking for. And then when that fails, or when that doesn't come through, we shake our fists, we get upset with God, we're angry because God let us down. Really, that's a prime example that we're just leveraging God as a means to get what we really want. In other words, our affections are set on, fixed on something beyond, or other than God. God was just a stepping stone towards that direction. Does that make sense? So the things that we oftentimes think we love aren't always the very thing that we love. Our, our, the root of our problem is what we love. We love the wrong things. And the things that we love, we love them because they offer us this, this, uh, this deal. They say, if you invest your heart, your energies, your mind, your affections in me, and whatever it is, then I will give you back life and hope or happiness, a sense of satisfaction, or purpose, or affirmation, whatever. And at some point, they will always fail. And so the prophets were always looking for a day. When will God change the very fundamental thing that's constantly going sideways? The heart. And this was always the hope of the prophets, that there were these verses, these passages that they would write. For example, Ezekiel 36 says this, I will give you a new heart, God says, and I will put a new spirit. So there's a phrase, spirit. God will put a new ruach within them. It says, and I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and will cause you to walk in my statutes. So the question is, how will God cause you to walk in my statutes? By a heavy hand? Because that's one way to get people to walk in statutes, right? Heavy hand, a sword over head, threats, right? Force. Um, this, they, they work, by the way. They work. Um, but they never have the ability to change the fundamental nature of our hearts. You guys following? So what changes the fundamental nature of our hearts? Well, transforming a heart that's once filled with anger and frustration and disenchantment to now being re-enchanted with love. And it's what God promises. One of these days, I'm going to change the fundamental nature that makes you tick, that drives you, that affects you, that reaches out and trusts. I'm going to change that thing. Your heart will be transformed. How? God will put a new spirit in us. So all that being said, by way of backstory, I'm going to now jump into the book of Acts because I think hopefully we're ready for that. You guys doing all right? 
All right, Acts chapter 19, let's jump in. I'm going to take a look at a handful of these things. We'll take a look at, first of all, the subject of spirit baptizing, spirit baptizing. So let's enter into the narrative and think about, hopefully, the idea or the backstory of the Holy Spirit as we read the story now. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7, I'll read it, make some comments, we'll move on. It happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, so we were introduced to this character Apollos last week. He was a uh, a guy. In fact, his story is, uh, I think, important to the story here. And again, um, there there in the original, there is no distinction between chapter eighteen and chapter nineteen. So that whole pause that we uh, put in between the weeks there is is non-existent in the passage. In other words, if you were to be reading this originally, you would just keep reading this. You wouldn't stop. You would keep reading it. So the story of Apollos is really important. So this guy was a, a well-known, gifted articulate, wise, super smart guy, Um, and yet he uh, only knew what we recognize as the baptism of John. And so it would seem as if Apollos does play in this story. Maybe these were uh, disciples of Apollos. Maybe this group of people that we're going to be introduced now, these 12, were friends of Apollos or uh, some uh, type of relationship that was going on here. But nonetheless, what we see is it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. So imagine that map that we just saw in your mind again. He says, and there he found some disciples. And then he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And then they said... No, we have not even heard of the Holy Spirit. And then he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, well, we were baptized into John's baptism. And then Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling, uh, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they were speaking in tongues and prophesying, and there were 12 men in all among them. Now, first of all, I just want to just address the big reality or the elephant within the room with this passage. This is not an easy passage to interpret, all right? Um, and I've actually spent a lot more time interpreting this. Several months ago, we actually did an entire series on the Holy Spirit. So if you're interested in kind of a bigger, broader interpretation of this, I would highly recommend go find that on our website, uh, calvaryslow.com, within our podcast, or there's um, far better uh, teachings on, online you can check out. One guy I would suggest, guy named Wayne Greedham, check him out. He's got some amazing stuff. Uh, so again, uh, or talk to me, and I'm happy to help you direct you in some things. So again, that being said, because again, this plays in a lot of questions of, of like, well, is this how the Holy Spirit works? Do people come to saving faith in Jesus? And then at some point later, um, I, don't, I don't really want to get into all that, but what I want to do is just focus on the, the big reality here is that whatever the case is, these people, whoever they were, they needed this Holy Spirit. For whatever reason, um, they didn't have the Holy Spirit. They didn't have the recognition of God's empowering presence. Again, fill in the blanks, not with your past experience, fill in the blanks of what God's empowering presence means by way of thinking about the video that we watched. That whatever the Holy Spirit is, however you've come to think about the Holy Spirit, think about the Holy Spirit in the context of God's empowering presence, which transforms and reshapes and changes our hearts and makes us, and makes all things new. So think about the Holy Spirit in that way. So these people, obviously, whoever they are, didn't have that experience with the Holy Spirit. So Paul asks them, have you been baptized? And they said, yeah, we were baptized, which means that they were probably to some degree connected with the uh, ministry of John the Baptist. And remember, we looked at again this last week, which meant that perhaps they were at least familiar with the potentiality of a coming king, Jesus. They might have even known of Jesus in terms of one that was doing miracles and doing great things throughout the region of Judea. 
But what they did not know was that Jesus uh, was executed, that Jesus rose again from the dead, that he conquered sin and death, and that he is now this reigning king. And then part of his uh, empowering presence is to give or to gift his presence by way of the Holy Spirit in the life of all people that have confidence or faith in him. And this renewing presence transforms our lives. So this is what I want to focus on, is that among other things, the Holy Spirit's job or aim or purpose or desire is to so inundate. We use the word baptism. The word baptize there is to completely immerse oneself in this milieu we would call the very presence and animating, life-giving reality of God. So Paul says, um, let, let, me, let me pray for you to, to trust Jesus, he does, he lays hands on them. Again, this leads to all sorts of questions. Is, is this the mode that everybody should follow? And again, this is where it gets into theories and practices and methods. And again, I don't want to unpack all that. I just want to simply say that you will oftentimes find throughout the book of Acts uh, a, a multitude of methods. So uh, in other words, the Holy Spirit works in ways that we can't simply uh, box and package and put a nice little bow on top at the very end and say, this is how God nicely neatly, tidily orders and works all things out. That, that God will not be put into a box. So Paul prays for these guys, lays hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. And we know what that means. In the context, it says, just like at the beginning, they're speaking in tongues, these unknown languages, as well as prophesying, speaking forth God's uh, good work amongst the people. So again, my simple point in this passage is to just identify the fact that they needed the presence, the empowerment of God's animating presence to so radically overwhelm them, to baptize them, to immerse them entirely. Think about it this way. If you're a follower of Jesus, the Holy Spirit is in you. This is what Paul would say. And the reality is, is there's this relationship of us giving ourselves entirely over to the work of God, the Holy Spirit, of letting the Holy Spirit have us. Holy Spirit has you, but have you given yourself entirely? I mean, are there areas in your life that you are withholding or refusing to give over or for whatever reason by way of fear or concern or not wanting to go overboard in your walk with Jesus or not want to be a crazy person in terms of a religious nut job, in terms of following Jesus, that you hold back, you restrain your efforts. And the fact is, is that this relationship, again, we keep playing this concept is that if Jesus is Lord, then we cannot treat him like a personal butler. We cannot treat him like someone that we simply utilize to accomplish what we want to accomplish on this planet. If he truly is Lord, then it means that he's Lord of all things in my life, that every area that is broken or dysfunctional or ruined or defiled or under the enslavement by some form of habit or sin or sinful habits or practices, that these are areas that God wants to transform and bring life into instead of death and brokenness and constant ruin. This is what we see God is up to. So first point is to simply look at the fact that the Holy Spirit baptizes or renews or changes. And he does that with this community of people. The second thing that we see in verses 8 through 10 is we see the Holy Spirit instructing. Now it's important to note that the way the Holy Spirit instructs is through agents. This is how God works. Is that the Spirit doesn't just show up and then begin to speak. He... he uh, by definition, spirit is, is non-body. But the way the Holy Spirit works is he works with agents. People that say, yes. People that say, 
I'll obey. People like you and I, no matter how broken or dysfunctional we are, that cooperate with God, that we say, yes, Lord, and we allow ourselves to be used by God, be used by the Holy Spirit in this context. What we see here in this story is that Paul's one of these guys that is just constantly saying yes to God. And in cooperation with saying yes to God, God's taking Paul all around the world, doing all sorts of pretty crazy, in some cases, amazing things. That doesn't mean that that will be the same way for you. It doesn't mean, so some of us have these fears, like, you know, we've all heard of that person at some point in our life. We're like, I didn't want to say yes to the Lord because I thought he was going to take me off into some country where there's big bugs. Like, so I've been afraid to say yes. Like, that's, in some ways, that's kind of nonsense. Like, like God is not going to, God is not someone that's just out to ruin and destroy your life. I mean, in some ways, yes. So don't get me wrong. Yes, God will ruin your life, all right? Let me, let me restate that. Yes, God will ruin your life. But he'll ruin the elements of your life that are actually already the source of ruin. In order to make way, to clear the rubble, in order to bring about some sort of foundational spot to remake something that's good. So the phrase that comes to my mind is God is constantly uh, involved in this glorious ruin of our lives, all right? Um, this glorious ruin. But the fact is, is what we see here in this passage is that the Spirit of God looks for people that he will use. Uh, so, again, it's, it's simply saying yes to God. And what we see with Paul in this story, we see the Spirit of God moving by way of instruction, instruction or instructing people. So, let's read the story. We'll kind of make some comments. Verse 8 says this, and then he, that's Paul, he entered the synagogue, and for three months he spoke boldly. So, three things that we see. Take, take note. He spoke boldly. He reasoned, and he was persuading them about the kingdom of God. And when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and he took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. And then verse 10, he says, this continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both the Jews and the Greeks. Now again, this plays into the very first verse that we read uh, out of the beginning of the book of Acts, that Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you will be my witnesses. In other words, you will boldly communicate and testify of me all around the world, beginning in Jerusalem, then to Judea, which is kind of a suburb, uh, Samaria, which was sort of the forbidden spot. Those are the, the people we don't ever want to talk to or hang out with or invest our lives and energy in because they are they're Samaritans. And yet God loves Samaritans. And then to the uttermost ends of the earth, that we, we see, again, this unfolding reality happening in the story here. Again, it's always God working in cooperation with people that, that say yes. So pause and think about this. Where's your heart? In terms of responsiveness to God, you say yes to God, or are we in the habit of saying no to God, or saying maybe God, or if you do X, Y, and Z, God, then, um, again, it, it always brings it back to this larger issue, is, is Christ king? Is he Lord? How do, you, how do we respond to sovereigns? How, how do we uh, 
communicate or work with a sovereign. If he asks us something, how do we respond? So in this context, we see Paul is doing what Paul typically does. Um, God gifted and wired Paul to be this guy that walks around, goes into places and talks and communicates. So in this story, we see Paul doing three things. One, we see boldly speaking or speaking boldly. Um, I envision Paul in monologue here, kind of like what I'm doing here. He comes in, stands up, and begins to speak boldly and communicate loudly within a context like a monologue, which is obviously common within ancient world just as it is in today's world. The second thing we see is that Paul was disputing. The word that's actually used there, the second word, uh, we get the English word dialogue or uh, communication. This is the idea of back and forth. Um, again, ancient rabbinic tradition would be not just simply monologue, but it was also involved dialogue, communicating, talking back, responding back. I think in many contexts today, you know, Facebook is just, can be a forum. It's not the best forum to communicate, but it can be a form of dialogue where you can sometimes, every once in a while, like every once in a while, when the planets are all in alignment, you can actually have a cordial, decent conversation on there. Every once in a while, it, it can happen. Um, dialogue, back and forth. And then the third thing we see that Paul was doing was persuading. And this is the idea of to win one's favor or to gain goodwill or to seek to win one. Uh, it's the idea of somehow not just simply um, engaging in an argument saying, this is what you must do. It's speaking persuasive language. Think about that. I think about that in the context oftentimes of how Christians try to communicate the gospel to some people. Sometimes Christians go out with these bold declarations, bold in some ways uh, what oftentimes get accused as imperialistic claims. We're here to tell you you're wrong and you're messed up and we're going to change your heart by telling you what you must believe. How many people does that like change your heart? How many of you walk away from that like, you know, that's it. That's, I'm going to change. Like if you were to be walking out of Trader Joe's and someone comes up to you and says, you are a fool for not recycling and you need to recycle. Are you going to walk away and be like, I need to recycle. Like, my heart's been strangely warmed. <laughs> like, like, it involves dialogue sometimes. It involves you sitting down, like, having a little, tell me a little bit about that. Well, here's the deal. Here's what's actually going on within the environment. Here's the, the thing, you know, those water bottles that you have, like, 18 of them. They're going to end up in some landfill, and those landfills are going to end up in some bird's stomach. And so we begin to process and think logically through some of these things. That's what Paul's doing logically reasoning with them about the importance of, of life in Christ, but also recognizing the fact there are oftentimes hopes and aspirations and dreams and concepts, and also I would even add imperialistic claims that the culture at large is throwing at us and saying, you must believe this, and if you do not believe this, we will ostracize you, and we will castigate you, and we will make fun of you. So we're like, I guess I should believe that. But the gospel always comes along and says, here's a faith that actually does make sense. Have you ever thought about how to communicate the gospel like that? To actually communicate the gospel in a way that aims to affect the heart. Not just instruct the mind. I mean, instructing the mind is important, but also aims to actually infect, or affect, I should say, maybe even infect in a good way, affect the heart and how people think about it. That's what Paul was doing. So again, the Holy Spirit was testifying. Thirdly, uh, I want to jump on to the next one, is we also see the Spirit testifying in this context. Verses 11 through 12, I'll read it. It says this in verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs, it gets crazy. You guys ready? Put on your charismatic seatbelts right now, because it's going to get nuts. He says this, so that even handkerchiefs 
or aprons that had touched his skin. So by way of trivia, what was Paul's um, vocation? What did Paul do? What was Paul's trade? Does anybody remember? Tent maker, yes. Like that's not just like like hypothetic. Like, oh, what's Paul's tent making like business? Like, like that actually was Paul's vocation. That's what he did for a living. Was he made tents, which meant that he was oftentimes out in the heat of the day, mending people's tents, making tents. I don't, I'm not sure exactly all that would be entailed in terms of that. And and you would have like a, a schmock on or an apron or maybe even a headband. And the word that's actually used here can in, uh, be uh, imply either a headband, like a sweatband, or an apron. Uh, either one, it would be. Filthy, nasty, would have funk all over it. And it's saying in the story that Paul's sweatband, people were touching it. And they're getting healed. Like, is this, this is crazy. This is nuts. But why is this happening? The Spirit of God, somehow, somehow, the Spirit of God is using unbelievable things to breathe life, to reorder, to transform, to change. Like this is, again, I'm just telling you what the story says. And it's one of those things that we think about, like, wow, God can do amazing things. And this is what we see in the story, is that it goes on to say, so that even the handkerchiefs and the aprons that had touched his skin, they were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits. Now here's the word spirit again, but it's uh, precipitated by the word evil, which means some sort of like oppressing or broken or crushing spirit as uh, juxtaposed with the idea of the Holy Spirit, which gives life and brings healing and hope. That what's happening are these evil spirits, these evil presences that, that are bringing destruction and ruin and hurt and oppression are being driven out in people's minds and lives are being transformed in that moment. It says they, they came out of them. In an instant, people's lives were changed. Some would, on a skeptical level, say, this is psychosomatic. That's fine if, if that's what someone wants to affirm. I'm just reading the text. And this is where I would say, why not believe it's the Holy Spirit? Why not believe this is actually a genuine work of God right now that's happening in the story? Why always have to look for some sort of alternative uh, way to rationalize it? To just believe the text, to see the text for what it is in the beauty of what it presents to us. And to just say, wow, God is at work up to doing something, bringing order where there's nothing but disorder, bringing healing and arrangement where there's nothing but chaos. This is what God is up to, and he's setting his people free. So the word miracles that's used there says that these are, um, these are powers. Another way to translate this is these are powers, not the ones that happen by chance, not ordinary ones. In other words, these powers that were at work, uh, these weren't like your normal everyday wake up, let's see who's going to get healed by my handkerchief or my coffee grounds today. This is like, this is, these are unusual happenstances that God was somehow just using in that moment. So in today's culture, when we're like, I wonder if my handkerchief will go out and work. So again, that, that's trying to fit God into this, this box or narrative that we're trying to script. Instead of just saying, Lord, how do you want to work? What are the modern day ways or parallels that you want to use today to bring people from a status of brokenness and ruin and oppression and crushing in their own heart to a status of Wholeness, where the Holy Spirit brings order, where there's once chaos. All right, I want to finish with one final one, which we see the Spirit renewing. We see in verse 13, it says, And then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, 
they undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. This is a kind of a comical story, but it plays into the final part. So what we see here is, um, in some ways, people kind of mimicking or, or, or trying to emulate what they witnessed with, with Paul. So in their minds, they're like, hey, Paul did uh, certain miraculous things. Maybe if we... Um, uh, chose the name Jesus like an incantation and spoke the name Jesus the way Paul spoke the name Jesus, maybe we can have that same type of power over what we're doing as well. So this is where the story gets kind of funny because in verse 14 it says, so these were seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva. Uh, they were doing this. In verse 15 it says, but the evil spirit answered them. So again, it's crazy, the, 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 the craziness of the text will not continue to let you down because here, here it goes. The evil spirits now speak. What do they speak? Here's what they speak. It says, and the evil spirits answered him. Jesus I know, Paul I recognize, but who are you? So imagine spirit speaking like, like we, Jesus, we, we, we know that guy. Paul, yeah, we've totally heard of that guy. Um, who, who are you guys? These evil spirits are speaking back to these guys. So again, um, it goes on to say, but then the verse 16, and the man uh, in whom the evil spirit had leaped then upon them and it mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. I can't make this stuff up. It's right there. <laughs> verse 17 says, and this became known to all the residents in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. This is where I think Luke's trying to bring back our focus, that this is not just a, a subplot about seven guys that failed in their attempt to cast out demons. The, the subplot ultimately led to the main narrative, and the main narrative is Jesus is extolled. And here's what it goes on to say. It says, even in the midst of this blunder or this failure or this attempt to somehow hijack the power of God, to create sort of a counterfeit power of God or spirit of God that the true genuine arise or had risen and begins to put, be put on full, complete display. And it says in verse 17, and this became known to all the residents of, uh, uh, of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, for fear fell upon them all. And the name of Jesus was extolled. Verse 18, also many of these things uh, that were, that were uh, now believers, they came confessing and divulging their practices. In verse 19, and a number of those who had practiced the magic arts, they brought their books together and they burned them in the, in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and they found that it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So that the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. So again, this is the Holy Spirit working, moving, even in the presence of evil spirits, overcoming and bringing about this crystal clear focus back onto the work and the power of Jesus. Again, my point is this, is I'll finish now, is just go back to this whole reality that it is about the Holy Spirit working, moving, Transforming lives, creating people in this context of being renewed, creating lives that can testify and proclaim and speak and boldly articulate and dialogue with others about the nature and the reality of who Christ is, that this is the Holy Spirit baptizing, immersing people in the life, transformative character and breath and heartbeat of God. I'm going to finish with a quote from uh, John Piper. Some of you guys know who he is. So in some ways, it might come as a shock to listen to this. But I, John Piper is, is a fantastic theologian. And he's got some great things to say about this. So this is what he says. 
In sacramental churches, the gift of the Holy Spirit is virtually equated to the event of water baptism. Again, some of these may be a little bit of generalizations, I realize, but just, just listen to the quote uh, in its whole. It says, in Protestant evangelicalism, it is equated with subconscious work of God in regeneration, which you only know you have because, quote unquote, the Bible says you do, if you believe, um, it is easy to imagine a spiritual counselor saying to a new convert today, don't expect to notice any difference in your life. Just believe you have received the Spirit. But that is far from what we see in the New Testament. The Pentecostals are right to stress the experience of being baptized with the Spirit of God. And this is the, Im- this is the image that we see here in the passage. This is what we see throughout the book of Acts. That you, you cannot separate the work that God was doing in the book of Acts and the work that God wants to continue today to do today in this world with, apart from the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that gives life. Now, again, I realize in some contexts the idea of Holy Spirit might spook you because it has been abused or has created a false or bad construct in terms of thinking about the Holy Spirit. This is why I want to help you to maybe flush out false notions, false ideas, and to replace that with images that we kind of painted from Scripture and also that the Bible Project helped us to reimagine what the Holy Spirit wants to do in and through our lives. So the crucial matter right now for us is to ask ourselves a question. Has the Holy Spirit completely have me? Have I given myself entirely to the work that God wants to do? What are those areas in my life that are just breeding grounds for brokenness and sin and entrapment by way of sinful practices? You realize that those may be areas that right now the Holy Spirit wants to set you free from? And in the place of that wasteland of deadness and brokenness and ruin, to bring something in that place that resembles a garden, that resembles life, this is exactly what God wants to do. This is what we see God doing in the book of Acts. And it's what we truly believe God even wants to do right now, right here. So, where do we go? The way we go forward, I believe, is by saying, yes, Lord. We trust him. Paul would later say, did you receive the Holy Spirit by like doing stuff? Or by believing, by receiving? The Holy Spirit, Jesus says over and over again, he's a gift. I give. And with all gifts, you receive. You say yes to God. Yes to the work. Yes to the reanimating power that the Holy Spirit wants to bring in your life. Yes to those areas in which the Holy Spirit may put his finger upon areas of your life that are filled with barrenness and saying, yes, God, bring a garden, bring life, bring renewal. So we're going to respond because in our modern day world, I was thinking about this the other day, and I'll wrap it up with this thought. Um, I was reading a book that basically was describing our society is actually built upon the back of what he describes as, as liturgies. They're secular liturgies. And the liturgies, now, we don't typically think in terms of acting as a modern-day human being living in the world as an as a act of liturgy. But what he describes as a liturgy is a liturgy is just a practice. Practice. And here's the way he describes three things. One, the practice of modern-day 2017 culture and society is this. Acquisition, consumption, and disposal. We acquire stuff. We consume stuff, and then we dispose of stuff when we're done with it. We do that on every level, whether it be relationships, food, things, goods, 
sometimes even churches. But he says, really, the liturgy of a follower of Jesus should be revelation. We receive understanding of who God is. Receiving. This is God initiating with us what it means to trust in him. And then he describes response, meaning we turn our hearts to God. And then thirdly, or fourthly, renewal. Letting God renew us. So, that should be our liturgy. Revelation, receiving, response, and renewal. Letting God renew those areas of barrenness and brokenness in our lives. So, why don't we all stand and have the worship team come on forward. I'm going to pray. And before we pray, we'll just give some quiet space to, number one, confess sin. To confess sin, to think about what are the areas of hardness of heart maybe you have in your heart, in yourself today, right now, that are hardened, turned away from God, where rather than looking at God face to face, you have your back to God. It's, it's a way of turning away in which God's saying, I want to renew, I want to change, I want to take that hardness and make it soft and pliable and malleable again um, to confess sin, but then to turn from those things, to turn to God, which is what the word repentance means, and then receive, receive the life-giving, life-animating presence of the Holy Spirit. So um, let's take a moment, and as we're done, I'm going to pray, and we'll sing a couple songs, and uh, I want to invite you, if you're here this morning, and you need prayer for anything, you just, there's areas in your life that are actually incongruent with the heart and character and nature of God, and you know it. You feel the brokenness. You feel the weightiness of giving in to the death and destruction in your life. And you want God to reform and transform your heart by receiving his reawakening presence of his spirit. We, we want to pray for you. Or if you just need the touch of God's spirit in your life. Or maybe if you're not a Christian and you want to be a Christian today. Um, I'm going to have some leaders come on to the front. I'll be up here as well. So if you're a community group leader, if you're involved in praying here before, just come on to the front. Just be available. So the worship team will play. The Prayers will be available. I'll be available to pray. And my encouragement for you, my invitation to you, is, is to be prayed for. It's a bold thing. It's sometimes scary because it means putting yourself out and being vulnerable. But do you realize there is never any true change without being vulnerable? So think about that. Let me pray right now and just open our hearts up, confess sin, turn from other ways, turn towards God, and to be open to the Holy Spirit. So... If you feel comfortable, you can close your eyes. You can maybe just lift out your hands as a way of just saying, God, I stand here with a posture that's open to you. And to consider those areas in your life that need to be confessed before God by way of sin. Confess them, speak them in your heart if you want. Those of you that have confessed those sins to God, uh, receive right now as a gift from God forgiveness of your sin. Receive that. Receive the gift of God that says you're forgiven. You're washed. So Holy Spirit, come. Remake, renew our hearts and our lives. We pray.